So you'll have to, I always feel a little bit funny preaching to a crowd this size with my Britney Spears microphone on my face, but it's there just so that we can record, just in case I say something that's actually worth hearing again. Um, there's the opportunity to do that. Um, but we're going through our summer, ser- our summer series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're still in chapter 5. Um, I think this is our fourth week in the series, I think. Been a really, really, really fun series so far. Um, challenging in the best sense of the word as far as how are we really living our lives and what is our motivation behind doing what we do. It's been so cool. But this funny image has been coming up in my head more and more as we're going through this series. And it's kind of ridiculous, but it's kind of how I'm viewing this series so far. And it's Jesus having a showdown with the Pharisees. Because, I mean, essentially that's kind of what's happening here is Jesus is challenging the Pharisees' um, proclamation of righteousness and how to be righteousness, and he's challenging it with his own proclamation of what it means to be righteous in God's kingdom. And so in the midst of this massive audience that's happening, right, as Jesus is preaching this sermon, there's this huge audience sitting down below the hill where Jesus is preaching for him, and we know that the audience from previous kind of sermons that we've talked about is it's mostly made up, we're just reading the text for all that, for that matter, um, the audience is mostly made up of just poor and lame and marginalized people from society. And Jesus, in the midst of this audience, is challenging the whole pharisaical mindset of how to be righteous. And he says, in the midst of all of them, and he says, really, to the greater audience, which we're included in as well, he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't even enter into the kingdom of God. You've got no, you can't even think about being a part of the kingdom of God unless your righteousness exceeds theirs. And the initial thought of what Jesus said in that statement is really scary. Because if you think about the scribes and the Pharisees, they set the bar so stinking high. These guys were dedicated to the law. To be any kind of religious leader in that day, in, Jew, in, in really kind of the Hebrew culture, you would have to not just come from the right pedigree and the right lineage to be deemed as a possible you know, candidate for, for religious leadership, to be a scribe or a Pharisee, but you have to be of the utmost, brightest intelligence. I mean, you would have to memorize. They start breeding these religious leaders and developing them when they're still in their infancy, practically, they would have to memorize the whole entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, by the time they were like five years old, even to be considered. And then they would do everything that they had to do to obey every aspect and facet of that law for the whole entire life because they are the elite. They are the religious leaders. They are the example for the whole nation. And Jesus is saying that we have to surpass their righteousness. That really is discouraging. When you, at first glance, I would say, I mean, the the Pharisees they were they were so overboard in making sure that they're obeying every aspect of the law to a T. They would do the most extreme things. They would wear these little boxes on their heads. Leather boxes, they were called phylacteries. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of them, but they would strap them to their head, and in the little boxes, they would have scriptures from, from the law. 
like the, the Torah from De- uh, Deuteronomy, or, or the great Shema from Deuteronomy. And they would have these in, on their heads and walk around. They must have looked so goofy with these little boxes on their heads so that they could obey God's command when he said, you need to know the law so well, it's got to be like it's bound around your wrists and in the frontlets of your eyes, always on your mind. And so they took that so literally, they would put it on their mind. And they would have these boxes on their head. They were so extreme. They were often referred to as the blind and bruised and bleeding Pharisees. That's what some people have referred to them, actually quite frequently. And why are they called the blind, bruised, and bleeding Pharisees? Because they would walk around like this, with their heads down, hunched over, just in case they locked eyes with another woman and had an inappropriate exchange or thought towards them, they wouldn't allow themselves even to look, and they would bump into things. (laughs) And Jesus is saying that our righteousness had to exceed theirs? He's either doing, and we talked about this last week, this is kind of a reminder, but this is, we have to grasp this really well because this is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is doing is he's not setting the standard even higher than they set and putting all the weight of that achievement on us, having to exceed even the things that they did, he's either doing that, which I now know that he's definitely not, or he's proving to all of them that they have been interpreting and viewing the law differently and they have to change their approach to how they view the law. It's not about external behavior management that's going to make you righteous in God's kingdom. It's about heart change and transformation. And that's where Jesus is always taking us back to. He's always taking us back to not the outward expression and behavior management of the law. He's always taking us back to the real intent of the law, which is to love God and to love others And that's what the law was there for. That's what the law is always there for, to teach us who God is and to show us the kind of people that we need to be in line with his character. So it's not the details of like putting boxes on your head and doing this and that and behavior modification that's going to make us great in God's kingdom. It's like the rules that I establish in my house. We have all sorts of rules for my kids to show them and to teach them to be kind to their brothers and sisters and to look out for each other, and to consider the other person's interests more than their own. And so we've got strict rules in our home that the kids have to abide by. And they don't obey the rules so that they can have our love and favor. Because guess what? Whether they're good or bad, they have our love and favor and approval. The rules aren't a way to earn my love for them. The rules are there as training wheels to help them learn how to be the people that God designed them to be, people that are about others. It's, it's not about, so they can obey the rules with the wrong heart. The rules are just to kind of direct them to what a right heart is. A right heart cares for other people. And so that's what Jesus is getting to kind of throughout this whole sermon. And I think it's really important for us to consider why they should listen to Jesus. Because Jesus is doing some radical stuff here. Jesus is doing some radical table-turning stuff. He's saying their righteousness is actually not the righteousness you should be going for. I'm going to cast a whole new view 
of what righteousness in God's kingdom is really like. Why should they listen to Jesus? Because Jesus came to fulfill the law. They thought that he came to abolish it. Because he's breaking all the rules. I mean, for crying out loud. Jesus is eating with people on the Sabbath day. He's dining with people on the Sabbath. He's healing people on the Sabbath. He's doing all these things that were so uncustomary to all of their religious culture. He has to be abolishing the law. But Jesus said himself and proved through his resurrection that he came to fulfill the law so they should listen to him. And how is he fulfilling the law? Whenever he was breaking any of those religious traditions or rules, he was always doing it for the sake of loving God and loving others. He healed people on the Sabbath because it was an expression of God's restoration and kingdom, and he did it with a heart full of compassion, and nobody could stop him because he was full of love. That's what the law is to point us to, is that kind of heart. It's not about the outward expression. It's not about the behavior management. So then Jesus, in this showdown between his righteousness and the pharisaical view of righteousness, which really is legalism, Jesus does a cool little comparison contrast. He compares a legalistic perspective to a loving, transformed heart perspective. And he goes down through all these different ideas and compares. This is how a legalistic heart views it, and this is how a loving, transformed heart where the life and love of God naturally flows from the inside out perceives this. And so he started, and we looked, talked about this last week, he started with the whole concept of murder and anger. And he said, you have heard it said that you shall not commit murder, but I say to you that even if you have an angry thought towards your brother, you've already committed murder because the murder already started in your heart long before it became an action. You see, he's taking them away from the outward behavior management way deeper into where they're supposed to go, which what they were totally ignoring, and that is their character and heart posture towards God and others, which is what the law is always to point us towards. And so here he does this little compare contrast. And so then we're going to get to kind of several more. We're going to hit three more things that Jesus compared a legalistic heart to a loving, transformed heart where the life of God naturally flows and is operating in the kingdom of the way that it's supposed to operate. And so Jesus hits lust. Jesus hits divorce. Jesus hits oaths. And we're going to get kind of quickly through all three of those things today. This is what Jesus says about lust right here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. There you go. Outward behavior management. Don't do this. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it out and throw it, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What Jesus is doing here is he's basically, he's obviously contrasting. He said, you've heard it said that you cannot have adultery or, you know, any kind of inappropriate physical relationship with others. But I say to you, again, they're focusing on the outward act. 
even if you've had a lustful thought towards somebody else, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And the language behind this Jesus saying, if you have a lustful thought, the language is basically saying that if we have lustful thoughts with intent, so if we are intending to not only have lustful thoughts, but also adopt that and, and kind of not endorse it, but indulge in it, then we've already committed sin. We've already done a form of adultery. He's taking them inside. And they're always trying to hide just by focusing on the outside. And it's not that temptation is evil and sinful in itself. Temptation with lust is really similar to temptation with anger, like we talked about last week. Anger in itself is not a sin. Anger is just that feeling that happens to us all. Whenever anybody else opposes our will, we get angry. But when we grab a hold of that anger, what we do with that anger determines whether or not we are in the right or in the wrong. And when we grab a hold of that anger and indulge in it and act on it, whether physically or not, because we also talked about last week that words can kill just as well, and if we act on that anger because we've indulged in it, then we're in sin. And the same thing with lust. Jesus says it's not all about just not committing adultery and doing the physical act. But if you have a lustful thought and you indulge in that lustful thought with intent, then you're already guilty because of what you did with that. And so he's taking them, again, back to the inside to where the real character is, the stuff that they're ignoring way too much, and because they're ignoring it, they're not fulfilling the law like they think they are. Then Jesus gives some really interesting examples of how (laughs) to control our lusts. This is what he says. Can we go back to it? He says, it's better for, oh, go back one more. He says, I tell you, if anyone looks, nope, wait, where are we? Oh, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Let me, let me give you some, let me help you out here. You guys want to control your lusts? If you look at a woman inappropriately, you better cut out your eye because it's better to go to hell or heaven blind than to go to a hell being able to see. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. If your hand causes you to sin, you better cut it off because it's better to go to heaven lame than to go to hell with a hand. (laughs) Hell in a handbasket. I don't know. But what in the world is Jesus doing here? Because, I mean, is he actually giving us more rules to follow so that our righteousness can exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Is that what he's doing by saying, gouge out your eye? Here, let me give you some helpful rules so that you can obey the law even better than the scribes and the Pharisees because they won't even take it this far, will you? Is that what Jesus is doing? Absolutely not. Because Jesus, he's been showing us the whole time it's not about outward behavior management that's going to help us. He's following their line of thinking and showing us how ridiculous their logic is. Here's the showdown with the Pharisees. If you want to follow the pharisaical logic of behavior modification and external means to be the person that God wants you to be, well, let's keep following that logic because you're not going to be able to control your thoughts by any kind of exterior management. You can try. Cut out your eye. You'll have to go to that far of a measure to try to be the person that God wants you to be, and you'll end up having to pluck your eyes out and cut your hands off, and guess what? You'll still have thoughts. (laughs) Your character will still be 
what it is. Jesus is showing them that it's about life transformation, not behavior modification. It's so important for us. I think that's why Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, right? Matthew 15. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. And there is wickedness and greed and adultery and murder and and what else did he say? Slander and all of those things that come out of a man defile him. It's all about the heart. Jesus was constantly bringing us back to that. And so that's what he's doing here. Pretty important. Pretty important. So then he goes to divorce. Again, another comparison here. What does he talk about when he gets to divorce? He said, it has been said, again, this is how you view it, legalistic pharisaical mindset, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Yes, obviously. That's part of the um, Mosaic law. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so we've got to give a little bit of cultural context to this one because it can get really sticky. (laughs) But the cultural context here is Jesus says, okay, you, you, have, had, you, you, it, it, you have heard it said that anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate of a divorce because Moses in, when did, where did Moses give the certificate of divorce? Deuteronomy chapter 24. He, gave, he allowed the people of Israel to have a certificate of divorce. And so now they are capitalizing on that freedom. But the reason why Moses allowed Israel to have a certificate of divorce was not because God was putting his stamp of approval on divorce and saying that it's okay and you can still be divorced for all of these outlandish reasons and and still be right in my kingdom. Absolutely not. It's because he was saving the lives of women through that certificate. Honestly, women couldn't divorce their husbands, but the husbands could divorce their wife because of this law. But if this law wasn't in place, Moses was doing it just to be gracious, just to care for the women in Hebrew culture because in the, in the Hebrew the nation of Israel, um, because if a husband wanted to abide by the law or at least look like he was abiding by the law, but hated and despised his wife. And if he, if he cast his wife out because there was no law saying that he could divorce her, and she, for survival, she had no other way to care for herself in that kind of a day and age, she would have to get remarried. But if she got remarried without an actual certificate of divorce, she would be viewed as being an adulteress. And adultery was punishable by death to the Mosaic law. So what's Moses doing? Moses is giving these women grace. He's protecting them. If a woman gets cast out by her husband and she marries again, she could be dragged outside of the city and stoned to death because she's viewed as an adulterer. That's what happens. And so now that she has a certificate of divorce, she could at least say, my husband divorced me, Now I'm remarrying for survival's sake. I'm not committing adultery because I have this certificate. It was to spare her. And it was also to spare women from all sorts of abuse. Because men, hard-hearted men, crooked men, 
whatever the case, husbands that didn't love their wives would tend to be very abusive to their wives. And if they wanted to adhere to the law, or at least look like they were adhering to the law, they would keep their wives, but keep their wives in a very, very abusive relationship. And what Moses is doing, he's saying, I'm going to allow these women to really have a way out of that abusive relationship so they could have some way to get by or another chance to maybe have some kind of normal existence in life. It's all for protection. It's not God's heart. Here's, I think Jesus expounded a little bit more about this. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was questioned. He was asked by the religious leaders. They said, is it lawful for a husband just to divorce his wife for any random reason? And you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, first of all, he said, what God brings together, let no man separate. And then he said, Moses wrote a certificate of, of divorce only because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not that way in the beginning. Why did Moses write a certificate of divorce? Because of the hardness of our hearts. Because the men in those dysfunctional marriages had such hard hearts that they would rather stay who they were and cast their women off rather than abusing their women. You know, let me rephrase that. Their hearts were so hard that they weren't willing to change who they were. And so because they weren't willing to change who they were, they would just treat their wives so poorly and a divorce, even though it's not God's best, would at least save them from an abusive relationship at best and maybe murder at worst. That's why. So, they're thinking, well, I can divorce my wife. I'm doing her a favor because I'm keeping her from being deemed as an adulteress and I'm giving her a second chance and I can divorce my wife so I don't look like an adulterer, and it's all about external behavior management. And Jesus said, you're wrong. If you divorce your wife for any other reason, you think that you're not being in adultery because you're writing her a certificate of divorce, you actually are. And you're committing adultery already in your heart. And those other relationships you're committing adultery with, so you're not off the hook. Does that all make sense? So anyways, Jesus is always taking it back inside to their motivation. The next one Jesus goes to is oaths. Let's look at this. Again, you have heard it said that it was, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Now Jesus goes into oaths. And they would have oaths, strong oaths, Kind of like we have oaths today, but obviously different language. You know, we talk about, I swear on a stack of Bibles. Or I swear on my grandmother's grave that it's this and this and this and this. And so their oaths were really important to them. Keep in mind that this is an honor-shame society. 
And so their oath was their bond. It was very, very vital to kind of how they were perceived. And so they were thinking, okay, if I give an oath, then I better live, I better live up to the promise that I made. Um, go back to the first slide. Again, you've heard it said, people long ago, don't break your oath. They, they said, don't, but if fulfilled to the Lord the vows that you have made. And so they're thinking, if doesn't matter what oath, I, if I just give a promise and an oath on my grandmother's grave or on a stack of Bibles, then I'm right, I'm good, I'm righteous, as long as I fulfill that and make good on my oath. And you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, no, you're not good. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. What they were doing is that they were often using strong oaths and compelling language to manipulate other people. Again, it's all about the intent of their heart. It's all about their character. Are they loving others or are they manipulating others? And trying to sway others to conform to their own agenda by using strong language. Just because you make good on your promise does not mean that you are righteous. You're actually using and abusing other people because you're a great speaker or orator or a convincer or whatever. And Jesus is calling their bluff on that. This is what Dallas Willard says about this. I really love what he said. He said, Jesus goes right to the heart of why people swear oaths. He knew that they did it to impress others with their sincerity and reliability and thus gain acceptance of what they are saying and what they want. It is a method of getting their way. They are declaring some promise or purpose or some point of information or knowledge dear to them. They want their hearts to accept what they say and what they want. So they say, by God or God knows, to lend weight to their words and presence. It is simply a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment and will of the ones they are focusing upon to push them aside rather than respecting them and leaving their decisions and actions strictly up to them. Hmm. Interesting. So these three examples that Jesus gives, they're viewing it as, hey, as long as I don't have any kind of inappropriate physical relationship with somebody else, I'm good. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. Even if you have a lustful thought, you're not, and indulge in that lustful thought, you're not good. Hey, as long as, I don't, as long as I write my spouse a certificate of divorce, then I'm good because I'm saving them from all sorts of, you know, allegations, and I'm saving myself from adultery if I do that. And Jesus says, no, because your marriage relationship goes way deeper than a piece of paper. And even if you do write a certificate of divorce and marry another one, you're still committing adultery because your bond is not just a contract. It's a covenant that you made with God and with each other. And you are ripping that apart. And regardless of the circumstances, you are already... No, you're not good. You're, you're using the law to, to do whatever you want to do. You're manipulating the law, changing the law, so that you can justify your own actions. You can't manipulate God that way. You're not being the people that God wanted you to be. That's why... That's why divorce is so violent, because it's a tearing apart of, the, of two people made one flesh. And so Jesus is calling their bluff on that. They're thinking, hey, as long as I make good on my promise, 
and I follow through with my oath, I'm good. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not good because you know what you're doing? You're just manipulating other people with your strong language so they can conform to your own agenda, which may or may not be right. See, he's, he's, this is a great showdown. He is totally calling out a legalistic, pharisaical mindset and how it approaches the law. And he's saying, if you want your righteousness to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, it's not plucking out your eyes and cutting off your hands and do all these great exuberant behavior modifications and actions. That's not what it's about. Allow life transformation to happen inside of you from the inside out. That's why Jesus was always going there. In every one of his talks, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent, and I won't beat a dead horse too long, but that's why he would tell them, you guys are whitewashed tombs for crying out loud. You're so polished and clean on the outside, but on the inside, you're rotten. He said, you're like those, you're, you're like, you're like those people that, that they clean a cup on the outside, but they ignore the inside, and the inside is just left dirty. But you, all, all you care about is what it looks like. If you clean the inside first, the outside will just be made clean by a result. That's where he keeps taking them. And so he's not so much just doing all of this to show them how bad they are. What he's doing is he's doing all of this to show them the actual intent of the law. And the actual intent of the law, as Jesus said himself when he was questioned by the religious leaders, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Love God and love each other. That's it. That's where he's bringing... So it's not like he's just saying, you guys are wrong. No, he's saying... I want to bring you into the real reason for the law. I want to show you how to attain righteousness from the inside out, not fool yourselves into thinking that it can happen from the outside in. Does that make sense? So that's really the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the heart of it. So I think we're really in the crux of kind of, well, we'll see where Jesus continues on with the sermon, but it's amazing. Um, And I would probably end just with this one thought. Just for us to really consider why this is so important for us to grasp today. Because we see Jesus challenging the pharisaical mindset then. We see him challenging the institution and the religious leaders then. Why is it important for us now? And I think the reason why it's so important for us to understand righteousness from the inside out instead of trying to control it from the outside in is because it makes radical implications on two things for us. It makes radical implications on our mission, and it makes radical um, implications on our community. It really does. If we don't get this, our mission will be negatively affected. When I say our mission, I mean our role as God's ambassadors to demonstrate who God is to a lost and lonely world, our role will be compromised as his ambassadors if we're just trying to fake it. If we're just trying to be polished and do what we're supposed to do because God says we're supposed to do it, but not really focus on the character inside that's flowing from the inside out, then we're going to compromise our mission to demonstrate who God is well. Honestly, I don't think we're going to do it because who we are on the inside will eventually come out. 
I mean, why do people view God, so many people, why is it, why is it so common for people to view God as this deity up in the sky? I think some of it comes from Hellenistic Greek culture, but that's a whole other conversation. But why do people view God as this deity up in the sky that's constantly judging us, that's constantly setting rules, that's hypercritical, and just waiting for us to step off the line so he can zap us with, with his judgment? Why do people view God as that? Could it be because some of the Christians have portrayed God as that or have really kind of been that in their own life, overly judgmental, overly critical, trying to get everybody to obey the rules because this is how God said it's supposed to be but not really have the life transformation inside of them. And so what they're doing is they're getting their image of God from how we're behaving and we're faking it. Okay, I do not want to be that kind of person. This is why it's important for us. We've got to change from the inside out. I'm not going to carry out God's mission by behavior management, no matter how good my intentions are. It's going to wrongly represent who he really is. He's a God of mercy and love and compassion for the lost. He's not a God that is hypercritical, waiting for us to go the wrong way so he can zap us with a bolt of lightning. But we tend to be very hypercritical. Anyway, and judgmental and all that. It's just natural human kind of, you know, nature. Um, But the other thing that it compromises is our community. And here's how. Because when we're faking it, and I think I'm preaching to myself more than anybody else, because, I mean, it's all good intentions. But when we're we're doing what we're supposed to do just by by behavior management and modification and all of that, but we're not really focusing on the inward part of our character, well, we kind of keep everybody else at an arm's length. At at an arm's length. Because we don't really want them to know who we really are. And so we're not going to really let anybody in because who we really are will eventually come out. So we don't want people to see that. I mean, Jesus said that you will know a tree by its fruit. And so we can't just keep tying fake fruit to our branches all the time without somebody finally discovering it. And so we don't let relationships go to the depth that they're supposed to go and be the human beings that we're supposed to be designed for a relationship because we are just polished on the outside. So that's why this is so important for us to understand. And the beauty of the covenant that we live in with Jesus is that what we get to celebrate today is that he is in us. And that's what we're going to do later in communion is talk about how God is in us. Jesus is in us. We're in him and he's in us. And so it's him who works in us to will and do of his good pleasure. We are new creations because we're in him. So it's not, so we don't, we can be freed up from any external behavior management to try to appease him, which it doesn't because it's all about heart transformation that only comes by the Spirit. And that's what we get to celebrate today. That's why we're here. And that's what Jesus in this sermon is bringing me back to over and over and over again. And that is life transformation only comes through a beautiful relationship with him, which we get to enjoy right now as I finally shut up and start praying and we start worshiping and then we can go eat together. All right, let me pray.